Good morning. There you go. That's a little bit better. So I want to, oh, I introduce myself. My name is Mark. Uh, my family and I are part of this church. We've been here for a few years now. Uh, and we love this, have a real sense of belonging. That's going to be our theme this morning, actually. Uh, but also, I'm part of the national leadership of our, of our national seminary. And so I get to belong on different levels. And it's fun to get to speak to you uh, this morning. What I want you to do, though, to start off is think of an experience where you realize you didn't quite belong. Uh, you didn't quite fit in. Maybe it was a sports team, uh, something at school, at work, your family, uh, whatever it was. But actually think of something in your mind. Don't just think generically, like actually have a scenario in your mind where you're going, eh, I don't think I actually fit here. Uh, you, know, you know the feelings that go around with that. So have that in your mind. Uh, as you're thinking about that, I'll tell you a story from my life that recurred every single summer. And so um, I'm born and raised in BC, but my dad's side of the family is from southern Saskatchewan, so I grew up on the farm. Uh, I very clearly am not a farm boy. And so every year we would go out, we would get in our station wagon, and this is, I'm dating myself, but this was when, we had, when there were station wagons, and a uh, station wagon that had the fake leather seats that got all hot and sticky in the summer as we drove through the prairies. Some of you may remember these kinds of scenarios. Put your hand up a little bit if you kind of sort of aren't too embarrassed to admit that. And uh, so we would get there and we do this long journey over to southern Saskatchewan. And if you know southern Saskatchewan geography, um, Herbert or Morse are the two cities. So the family farm was just a little bit south of there. And we do this long trek and everybody would get together. And on that side of the family, actually on both sides of the family, I'm the youngest cousin. So everybody's older than me. They're more or whatever. And um, we get to the farm and my brother and my cousins would would grab the guns and go off shooting gophers, or they'd go in the barn and start working on things. And, and I clearly did not belong, because uh, I'm the mama's boy. Uh, leave me inside in the house. I'll play in the corner with, and I'm an introvert. Uh, I'll play with a Lego in the corner. You know, maybe I can help set the table for dinner or whatever. But I, every year, as much fun as I loved uh, seeing my aunts and uncles and all that kind of stuff and my cousins, I, in one hand, I dreaded going there because it just... And that's an actual picture, by the way, of our farm. Uh, I, I uh, in some sense, dreaded it because it would just remind, remind me that I don't actually belong. So if you've ever had that kind of con or feeling, you know, where you're like, oh, I, just, I just don't fit. I just, for whatever reason, I don't fit. Um, ask yourself the question, how did it make you feel? Like inside, how do you, how do you process the realization that, yeah, I don't totally fit? How does it affect how you see the people around you? because it, it does affect that, how does it affect how you see the world? Our sense of belonging affects all of that. Now flip it for a second, and then think of, it, of a story now or an experience where you would go, I totally belong here. These are my people. I fit. This is it. This is my crowd. This is my context. I'm just, oh man, I come in here and I slide in and it's just, oh, this, this works. This is me. You've all had that kind of experience. When we moved down to uh, Abbotsford uh, a few years ago, what, we didn't know anybody, and so I'm thinking, how do I get to know people? I'm a trail runner, so how do I get to know the trails? Oh, there's this thing called the Abbotsford Trail Running Club. I'll just show up, because on Thursday nights, there are these free runs uh, where anybody can show up and, and whatever, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll take the terrifying step of me, the extrovert, or it, no, I'm not, I am not the extrovert, me, the introvert. Uh, I'll show up and see what happens, and I'll see if I fit in there. Like, are these elite snobby runners? Are the like, I don't even know, right? So I showed up, and I fit in, which was nice. Uh, but I still didn't felt, feel like I belonged. 
um, until, that was not very good grammar, uh, until probably a month or two later, one of the guys in the club uh, messaged me and said, hey, Mark, a bunch of us are going running on a Saturday morning down in Washington State. Do you want to come with us? And I'm like, I belong, right? Because this was a choice to invite me in. It wasn't an obligation because, yeah, on Thursdays, everybody has to be there. We have to run. And so I suddenly realized and I felt that I belong. So when you think of your story of belonging, how does it shape and influence how you think about yourself? What you think about the people who you belong with and what you think about the larger world. We're going to talk about that a little bit this morning. The sense of belonging and how powerful it is when we have it and how isolated we feel when we don't have it. So to do that, uh, get your Bibles and uh, if you have them on your phone or your uh, good old-fashioned Bible, whatever it is, uh, or it's going to be in the screen too, turn to Luke chapter 18. Uh, we're going to look at two stories this morning that actually, are, I think, are meant to be read side by side. Uh, sometimes we read a story of the Bible and then we just kind of look at it without looking at the context. When we read these, each, either of these two stories, they actually make the most sense when they're read together. So I'm going to tell you two stories this morning. Uh, both of them from, uh, well, one from Luke 18, one from Luke 19. They go uh, one right into the other. But before I do that, let me give you a little bit of context. So in the, the big picture of Jesus' life, in terms of his ministry, which kind of lasted three years, more or less, uh, you, you can kind of divide it into three eras. Uh, the year, for the first year, would be um, the year of obscurity. So that's when Jesus wasn't really known all that well. He was traveling around, doing things. He didn't have much of a reputation yet. He was, the crowds weren't really there, uh, but he was building stuff. So the year of obscurity. Second year of his ministry is called the year of popularity. And that's where things just exploded. He's doing miracles. Uh, all kinds of crazy stuff is happening. And these crowds start to follow him because, man, Look at the stuff that Jesus is doing, these provocative things that he is saying. So that second year, I mean, they're not exactly 12 months, but just kind of this rough frame, right? Uh, very popular. And then no surprise, year number three is called the year of opposition. Because as soon as you start standing for something and, and, and doing things, dramatic things on God's behalf, you're going to experience opposition. And so this is where some people just loved him all the more, but those who had positions of religious authority started feeling threatened by Jesus, and then therefore started to oppose him. Uh, so this is happening near the tail end of that, uh, just in terms of Jesus' ministry. And then the second piece, in terms of geography, you can see the map on the screen. Uh, just prior to this, the two stories that we're going to tell, Jesus is up north in, in Galilee, and he's speaking and teaching up there. And just for kind of reference, if you go from the bottom of the Sea of Galilee to the top of the Dead Sea, that's about 100 kilometers, just to kind of put a scale on it. And so Jesus was up there, in uh, the northern region, preaching and teaching, and then he was on his way to Jerusalem. And to do that, he had to work his way down the left side, the west side of the Jordan River. And then to get to Jerusalem, you have to turn at Jericho. So the two stories that we're looking at happen in and around Jericho. And if you know biblical history, Jericho is not a desirable place. There's not a lot of positive stuff associated with Jericho. Um, it's kind of a, it's, yeah, there's history there that we don't have time to get into this morning, but it's not as, as glorious or reputable as, say, Jerusalem. It's, it's yeah, it's, it's Jericho. And so Jesus is going through there, uh, and we see, we're going to read a story where he's kind of going into it, and then one as he's passing through it on his way to Jerusalem, just to kind of place where everything is. So here are the stories. 
Uh, I'll read the first one and kind of ex explain some stuff as we go along, and then I'll jump into the second. So this is Luke 18, uh, starting in verse 35, and it should be on the screen there too. As Jesus approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. Now, stop for a second and humor me. Just close your eyes. Nothing bad's going to happen. Don't worry, you're safe. I'm not going to throw things at you. Uh, but just close your eyes and actually do that. Now, when your eyes are closed, imagine if that is a permanent state. And then imagine how vulnerable you are. You have no idea what's going on around you. You can't tell if something is coming towards you. You have no sense of, I mean, yeah, you can hear and you can smell and you can, you know, those senses work. But really, if you are a blind beggar on the side of the road, you are incredibly vulnerable and helpless, and you are unaware in many senses of what's going on around you. That's Bartimaeus. He's sitting, you can open your eyes now if you want. That, that's Bartimaeus sitting there on the side of the road. Now, if you know anything about geography, when Jesus is up north, it's kind of green around the Sea of Galilee, and as you slowly work your way down, it becomes less and less green, more desert, more wilderness. So uh, Bartimaeus is sitting here, not even in the town, on the outside of a disreputable town where it's, it's wilderness and it's, if this is in the winter, it's freezing cold. Uh, if it's in the summer, it's baking hot and he's there, his, he's blind, he can't do anything, he's vulnerable and he's sitting there and then he starts to hear footsteps and he knows something is going on. But like most of us here, he can't turn his eyes and see. He just hears it coming. When he heard the crowd going by, this is verse 36, he asked what was happening. Because you can imagine sitting there, hey, hey, I hear, what's going on? What's going on? What's happening? I can hear something. He doesn't know if it's a good crowd, a bad crowd. He has no idea. Is he in danger? He, he has no clue, but he knows something's going on. So he's asking, what's going on? Uh, what is happening? And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. We learn so much from his response. As soon as he hears that, he called out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So he hears, what? Jesus is here? No way. Where is he? Jesus. And he starts calling out. He doesn't even know where Jesus is yet, but he knows he's somewhere in the crowd. And he's calling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now, son of David is a powerful term because that's, you have to be Jewish to know that term, which means you have to be a person of faith. And son of David is a title that is given to anybody who the Jews are going, ah, this person actually might be the next king. This might be the Messiah. And so here's this beggar who's blind on the side of the road who can't physically see, but spiritually he has an idea what's going on. He's going, Jesus is here? Jesus is the son of David. He's the Messiah. And he starts calling out, have mercy on me. You can imagine him kind of putting his hands out, feeling, hoping that Jesus is somewhere near. And he's calling out for Jesus. Those who led the way rebuked him and told him to be quiet. Shut up. You're making noise. Be quiet. We got this good thing going on. Just get out of here. You're ruining it. We don't need your kind here when we got this good thing with Jesus going on. We're with Jesus. You're not. Stop it. Just be quiet. But he shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. I'm amazed at what Jesus does. Jesus stops and then ordered the man be brought to him. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't, st he doesn't carry on, for one thing. 
go with the crowd. He also doesn't stop and turn around and say, oh, I'll go back to Bartimaeus. But he actually gets the crowd involved. The crowd that was telling Bartimaeus to be quiet and go away, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing here. He goes, no, 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 you, you crowd who are doing this, I want you to actually go get him. You've rejected him. I want you to be of bringing him, part of the process of bringing him to me. So he makes the crowd actually become advocates for this person who they were trying to dismiss earlier. That's not by accident uh, that Jesus does that. So he he stopped and ordered the man to be brought to him. When he came near, Jesus asked him, what do you want me to do for you? Can you imagine being asked that question by Jesus? Knowing it's Jesus, right? So Bartimaeus knew who this was. What do you want me to do for you? And it's not what do you want me to do for you within these limits, you know, or in this kind of time frame, or I'm, I'm in a hurry, so give me a quick one here. What do you want me to do for you? I'll do something quick. Jesus just says, what do you want me to do for you? If you were to hear from Jesus today and hear his voice say, say your name and go, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? What's the longing of your heart? What's the go, oh, Jesus, could you just please do whatever? How would you fill that in? Have you ever actually asked Jesus that? Or have you been asking over and over again and you're getting tired of it? But if Jesus were right here, right now, looking at you, in particular, out of the crowd, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? Bartimaeus' answer, in some sense, is kind of obvious. Like, I don't think it shocked anybody. What does he say? Lord, I want to see. I want to receive my sight. Now, in reality, when, when we ask someone to do something for us, we actually believe they have the capacity to do it. Otherwise, we wouldn't ask. So Jesus, or, sorry, Bartimaeus asking Jesus, can you, can you give me my sight? I think it's reasonable to assume that he actually believed that Jesus could do that. Otherwise, why would he ask? So Jesus, in this very simple, straightforward way, just simply says, receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. I love the non-drama around that, right? There's no formula. There's no this and that. And if you do this, okay, we need to stop doing that first, Bartimaeus. And and here's a list of stuff. Get your stuff together. And then maybe I'll, what do you want me to do? I want to receive my sight. And Jesus would know that. Everybody knows that. That wasn't new. And Jesus just simply goes, you know what? Receive your sight. Your faith has healed you. Immediately, he received his sight and followed Jesus, praising God. When all the people saw it, they also praised God. So even how this story ends is significant because when the story started, Bartimaeus was sitting there on the side, vulnerable, can't see on the outsides of town. You can't really walk if you can't see, especially in that context. It's not like it's accessible. You know, accessibility was not really a driving factor in the culture back then. Um, That's how the story starts, where the story ends, is Bartimaeus can see and he actually becomes a follower of Jesus. He already had some faith because he, he knew who Jesus was and he called him by that messianic name. And then his faith was there, enough faith was in place that Jesus goes, you know what, that's part of your healing. And now he follows, he belongs with Jesus now and actually physically follows him with sight. It's an amazing story. Uh, there's so much in this story for us uh, as well and we'll get there in a second. 
But what's even more significant is if we read this next story in parallel with it. Because if it, at first glance, you may go, okay, just another story. These two actually link together. So let me just jump right into the next story. So this is Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Uh, so whereas the first one kind of happened on the outskirts of Jericho as Jesus was coming in, this one actually happens in Jericho. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. I'll just stop there for a second. Uh, the, the, the concept of a tax collector uh, back then was you worked on behalf of the Roman Empire. So Israel or Palestine with a little province kind of in the backwaters of this vast Roman Empire. And Rome got its money different ways, but one of the ways was by collecting tax from all the people that it governed. And the way it did that was assigning tax collectors in various areas who would, who would collect whatever the rate was. But how they got paid was saying, uh, okay, there's your rate that you have to pay the government, but you actually got to pay me a little bit more. And so they, they added their own percentage on top of that, and that's how they made their money. So you can imagine they weren't necessarily popular people because it's perceived as you're just skimming. And they had, the, they had the right and the authority to do that. So if you didn't do that, then they have Rome <laughs> coming down on those people. So they actually have that ability um, to do that. So it's not surprisingly, tax collectors are wealthy. Chief tax collectors are really wealthy. So Zacchaeus is loaded. And he may not be a popular person. Now, a little bit in his defense, before we get too hard on tax collectors, we do similar things today. If you do any kind of investment, what do you have to pay? A management fee, right? And in some sense, this is kind of like the management fee for collecting your taxes or whatever. And so you could have tax collectors, some who, ha who had more integrity than others and who would charge a little, you know, a reasonable amount. Others who were going, I could charge whatever I want uh, and, just, and just rip people off. So we don't know... Well, I shouldn't say that. I think we have a sense by the end of the story who Zacchaeus was. He seems to be one of the better ones. Um, but that's what a tax collector is. So somebody who is, w everybody would know who he was, so very well known, very wealthy, may or may not have been popular. Uh, but that's who Zacchaeus is. But the story goes on. He wanted to see who Jesus was. So he didn't know Jesus. He'd heard of Jesus. I heard he's coming in town. He's in town? I want to see him. Kind of like, you know, whoever the celebrity is comes into town. Oh, 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 maybe if I can, I'd love to see whoever it is, right? The athlete, the, the member of the royalty, the whoever it is. So that's what uh, Zacchaeus is thinking. I want, to see, I want to see who Jesus is. But because he was short, he couldn't see over the crowd. I love these biblical stories that just kind of throw on these little things, right? Because you're thinking, oh, it's this great big spiritual journey. Oh, he was short and he couldn't see over the crowd right? Because it's so authentic, the feel for these stories, or I mean, of these stories. So he was short and he couldn't see. So he ran ahead, knew where Jesus was going, ran ahead, climbed a sycamore tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. So get this picture of a very wealthy man, a very well-known man saying, forget it, whatever, I'm going to run ahead. And he runs ahead, climbs a tree waiting for Jesus. Now you would expect a kid maybe to do that, not this wealthy, well-known person in the community. We'll get back to that in a second. How he was willing to pay, he was willing to sacrifice his social status because he needed some spiritual security. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. Notice that Jesus knows Zacchaeus' name, even though they've never met. Zacchaeus didn't know who Jesus was. Jesus knew who Zacchaeus was. So important for us. Even if you and I go, yeah, I don't know. I'm on, I don't even know if I'm on this journey toward Jesus or not. I'm not totally sure. 
It doesn't matter. Jesus still knows your name. He still calls your name. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. I want to be with you. I want a relationship. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. So then the scene switches a little bit, and you can imagine him going to his house. And as this is happening, uh, verse 7, all the people saw this and began to mutter. Notice the crowd, right? How the crowd messed everything up in the first story. Here they are missing the point again. They began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. <gasps> Gasp. Like, Jesus, if you really knew who he was, you wouldn't go there. You kind of get the sense of Jesus saying, I know exactly who he is, and that's why I'm going there. Uh, there's different people in my life uh, at various points where my assessment of their spiritual journey, if I can dare to do that, right, it's a dangerous game to do that, uh, is that they think they are too bad for Jesus. But that's not Jesus. And actually, when we get to the end of the story, his point is, there's, I don't even use those categories. Jesus kind of says, I'm here for all of you. How you define yourself, that you can work through that. I am here for you. I know your name. I am here for you. Every single person, uh, not just here, but our extended family, the whole world, uh, Jesus is here for. And, but these people are like, oh, come on, Jesus, you should know better. We thought you were wise. You can't go to this house of this guy who's a sinner. But I love what Zacchaeus does. He's like, oh, forget it. I'm going to address this. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Lord, look, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. Now remember who this guy is. Half his possessions, possessions is a ton of money. This guy is absolutely loaded. So when he says he's giving half his possessions, that's having a massive impact because he is giving away a ton of his own personal money. And if I've, if I've cheated anybody, I'll give it back four times the amount. Now here's where you do get a sense that maybe Zacchaeus was one of those tax collectors that had some integrity because he's going, okay, if I cheated, I'll pay back four times the amount. Like, a, I, you know, so it doesn't say that he was one of those people, but that kind of, that phrase indicates that he was probably was attempting to live somewhat of a moral life. Jesus says to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. And just a second, that phrase, calling him a son of Abraham, massively significant in terms of belonging and family. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Those stories are fascinating when we read them together because I think collectively they paint a picture of all of humanity. Whether we're rich or poor, advantaged, disadvantaged, privileged, uh, completely helpless, we know who Jesus is, like Bartimaeus, but we've never met him. We don't know who Jesus is, and we want to meet him like Zacchaeus. No matter our spiritual state, the picture that's being painted with these two people, whether we're in the city, on the outskirts of the city, I mean, whatever metaphor, language, comparison we want to use, collectively, it's for everybody. The message that is being presented by putting those back to back is that Jesus is here for every single person, regardless of whatever. 
you know, and it's fascinating because both the stories happen in Jericho. They both have Jesus passing through. They both have uh, the crowd getting in the way and, and this kind of people being pushed aside or misunderstood. They both have people wanting an encounter with Jesus. They both have an encounter with Jesus. They both have transformation and they both have people belonging back into the community. Notice that for Bartimaeus, uh, he actually becomes part of that community. He belongs now. He he's follows Jesus. So there's a group of people, there's disciples that follow Jesus. Bartimaeus is now part of that. He's, he belongs. Uh, with Zacchaeus, that language, him, uh, you two have been a son, of, or are a son of Abraham. That's Jesus very clearly saying, you are actually part of this larger faith tradition. These Jews, these people who around here who should know better, actually you're one of, the fault, one of the sons of Abraham as well. So he's connecting Zacchaeus, who could be on the outskirts because of his profession. The Jews wouldn't like him. He's saying, no, no, no. He is actually part of this family as well. So they both got brought, get brought in to community. But they are different. Bartimaeus is blind, disadvantaged, vulnerable, helpless, and he, rel- he knows who Jesus is and relentlessly pursues him. Zacchaeus, on the other hand, is rich, has everything. He has no need for anybody to help him because he's got everything. But he doesn't know Jesus. And he's willing to risk a lot of stuff to go find Jesus. Every person needs an encounter with Jesus. Um, Jesus actually wants a personal encounter with each one of us. He's inviting us in. Now, when we read these three stories, uh, I think we could find ourselves in three different spots. One could be, you know, if, if my life and if your life are going, yeah, you know, I kind of resonate with Bartimaeus. Uh, life hasn't gone quite the way I wanted to. I feel isolated. Uh, we're one of the most connected societies in the world. Studies would show we're also probably the loneliest society in the world. Uh, so connection doesn't mean belonging. Uh, and we're going, oh, I wish I belonged somewhere. I feel isolated. Uh, life didn't go the way I planned. Uh, I need other people to help me. Uh, maybe if the people in your life has actually been interfering with your life, like these people who would claim to be religious but are actually pushing people away from Jesus. Maybe that's been part of your story. If that's you, be encouraged by Bartimaeus. Just call out to Jesus. Who cares what anybody else thinks? Be relentless. Jesus hears. And he may actually use those people in your life who have been a problem to actually bring you closer to him. But be relentless in pursuing Jesus. Follow him. He wants you. Or maybe you're like Zacchaeus. And you're going, yeah, actually life's been gone pretty well. I'm successful. My family is healthy and relationships are good. My business is going well. I have a good secure job. We travel to Hawaii twice a year. We, you know, whatever it is, uh, we have a safe, warm house, uh, you know, whatever. And by the way, we are doing really well if you compare us with the world. We are actually, we are living like kings and queens in any other context compared to the world. Uh, But maybe you're doing well and stuff is going, it's, it's good. But you're going, yeah, but there's something missing. It's not quite good enough. Then, I would encourage you to be like Zacchaeus and pursue that thing that is missing. Pursue that person that you need. And like Zacchaeus, be willing to take a social risk to do it. Or maybe some of us like, might unfortunately be like the crowd. And because of our presuppositions and our stereotypes and our assumptions, we've actually played a role maybe in the way we do things with other people or, or are the beliefs that we have or the things we say, the way we do church. We're actually a barrier between them and Jesus. I mean, no one wants to be called out like that. I don't want to be called out like that. But 
you can't read these stories without asking the question and saying, hmm, would I be part of the crowd? So I would encourage you to have that honest kind of self-assessment and go, are you living and talking and speaking in a way that draws people to Jesus or actually puts a bit of a barrier between them and Jesus? As the worship team comes up, um, what I want to do is lead us in prayer. And uh, as I do that, I want to actually make an invitation to you. I'm not going to ask you to come to the front so you don't have to. Uh, but if, as, as you've heard these stories, if maybe something has kind of tweaked inside, the light bulb has gone on, or you're, maybe God is going, you know what, knock, 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 pay attention to this. And you're going, yeah, I need to follow Jesus. Maybe you're like Bartimaeus who knows Jesus, but actually needs to encounter Jesus. Maybe you're like Zacchaeus who doesn't know Jesus and you want to meet him. Uh, my invitation for you is simply when we pray here in a minute that you just put up your hand. Um, everybody else is going to have their heads, clo heads closed. Your heads bowed and your eyes closed. That's the way it works. Uh, so this, this is not in front of anybody else. Uh, but if that's, if that's you, um, then I would invite you to, to put your hand up let me pray for you, and maybe today is the day that you follow Jesus in a new way. So let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you so much for these stories in your word that paint so clearly the picture that you want us to belong to you, Jesus, no matter who we are and what, anything about us, you just want us to belong with you. And I pray for those of you uh, here who are raising their hands right now uh, that you will reach down to them and you will make them know and feel and experience that sense of belonging that comes from you. Uh, God, so reach into their hearts, help them to, to know the closeness that they have with you, to know that uh, to follow you changes everything, whether that's in a deeper way or a new way, whatever it is today, God, I, I just ask that you, these commitments that are being made, that you just take them, solidify them, and transform the lives of everyone in this building, especially the people who raise their hands. And I pray for our church that you will cause us to be uh, a welcoming, authentic church that draws people to you, Jesus. And if we do things that get in the way, make that clear to us so that we can stop. Um, doing those things. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Uh, you move in powerful ways, God, and we are so grateful for that. Amen.